The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Clemens Hoffman. Each week we will discuss tools, tips, and ways to radiate your best life ever, interviewing practitioners, authors, and luminaries to help you on your path. Wellness, joy, peace, abundance. What do you want to radiate? Hello and welcome to the Radiate Wellness Podcast. We radiate forgiveness today with my guest, Jeff Thompson from the UK. Jeff is an award-winning writer of books, stage, and screen, has written so many wonderful things about his experiences. Welcome, Jeff. Thank you for joining me today. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. so your book that we're going to be talking about is Divine CE the Divine CEO. Yeah. And uh, yeah, the Divine CEO creating a divine covenant. Um but that's not the first book you wrote. No, I've written 50. 50. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know where it comes from. Yeah, I've written a lot. I've written a lot of films, a lot of plays, a lot of film, a lot of books. Sure. Um, I've done lots of, uh, uh, I've done a, I, I had a podcast on my own once where I just talked to camera and did about, had a, I've got a hundred of them online somewhere, just planting seeds everywhere. Sure. There's some kid out, there's some kid out there waking up, waking up at four in the morning in a cold sweat and thinks he can't get through another day. I want him to know uh, that he can find our work and that our work will offer him balm, hopefully offer him direction. Um, and if nothing else, just a little bit of love. So he could find me at four in the morning in lots of different places on the internet. So my, um, my dharma is to just uh, follow the instructions of my soul and put out as much um, truth as possible and just put it in all sorts of places so if somebody does wake up at four in the morning in the cold sweat and it's going to be another long day they might be able to access me on the internet and hear something that maybe will be intercessionary and take them on another direction a better direction because as you know the fall is always the call isn't it right 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 it is and you've had your own fall and you've been that kid yeah. Needed something. Yeah, because you have not always been a writer. 
But when I went through, I went through a lot of depressions when I was younger. And then the final, the final big depression, I remember going to books, going to time. This was before the onset of the internet, trying to find help, balm, guidance, direction, something to take this sorrow out of me. And everywhere I went, I did, I just wasn't getting the answer. And I didn't feel as though the authors were being honest. I felt they were afraid to tell the truth. Um, and I remember saying to myself, and I, and I fell upon a secret, I didn't realize at the time, I said to myself, when I find the truth, I'm going to tell everybody. And I've been doing that ever since. And of course, I didn't realize that was one of the great messages in the Torah, which was uh, from Isaiah, send your love and your light out into the world and it will guide you. It says something about um, when the when the um, uh, the master sets the table before the servant. The master sets the table for the servant before he eats himself. And what it was basically saying in allegorical terms was that before we look for um, before we look for healing in ourselves, we've got to find somewhere where we can give that, where we can put it out. So if I can find something big to serve, some. You know, if I can find a lot of people who need to be served, and I will be able to download that material, pass it on to them, and also be healed at the same time myself. So that's the secret, as we know, to the tree of life, which is if we draw from a selfless place, it will always be given to us. If we draw from a selfish place, it may arrive, but it will be corrupted. So I, I happened upon that at the very beginning, and I've, and I've kept my vow, even though at times... It's been very difficult to share the truth because obviously, as you know, when you speak the truth, you hear the truth, and that can be painful, can't it? Right, absolutely. And you came to this from, you, like you said, a place of pain, depression, mm. anxieties, and finding out, um, I don't know if you had the, the terminology for it then, but it sounds no, like I didn't, being yeah. an empath. Yeah, yeah, I, I just... Um, I just remember this depression visiting and it would just turn up and it would kick down my door and it would say, I'm back again and I'm going to stay as long as I want. And the threat was always the same. I can come back anytime I want. It was the thought of having to live with it forever that, that destroyed me. Not so much having it, but the thought that I, it, it always threatened to stay forever and never go away. And I tried everything. I can even remember as a young man in the shower literally trying to scrub this sorrow out of me. I tried everything. He wouldn't go. Eventually, at the very depths of this depression, I, I was married. I'd got three young children at the time. I was waking up at four in the morning in a cold sweat, my wife beside me in bed, my kids in the other room also asleep, but I was alone. And it was a long day. The doctor gave me his answer in a bottle of antidepressants which told me he didn't, he didn't know the answer. He'd just give me pills. That didn't work for me. Um, and my wife was afraid of the depression. When I became depressed, it frightened her because I'd be following around the house like a lost puppy. I was so, so deeply sad. She didn't know how to deal with it. So that made it even worse because my wife was afraid of me, not afraid of that I would do anything, but afraid that she didn't know me. And I remember just this one moment finding this piece of courage from somewhere and just thinking, I'm not having this anymore. I'm not having it. 
So I decided to, I decided that I was going to go out and make it my mission. And this was my first, probably my first communication with my soul. And it gave me this idea to draw a pyramid on a piece of paper and write down all of my fears, each fear on one step of the pyramid, least fear at the bottom step, worst fear at the top step, and then go out into my life and confront my fears until I was no longer afraid, gain desensitization to the feelings, overcome all of these illusory fears. I went from being afraid of a spider in the bath to uh, standing on a nightclub door working as a bouncer in life and death situations. So progressively, I, I confronted, confronted my fears, um, uh, got desensitization towards the feelings of adrenaline and anxiety, learned to manage that. And obviously, each time I overcame a fear, I captured the effulgence that was in the fear, and the, the nature of the fear itself was liberated. It was gone. It was gone forever. Each time I reclaimed a part of myself, I was able to build my strength up, build my knowing up, build my wisdom up, build my courage muscles up, and then I was able to go at the next sphere and the next sphere and then the next sphere. As I climbed the pyramid, I realized that a lot of the fears I put on there were placeholders. They were hiding something deeper. So I was afraid of spiders. I was afraid of the dentist. These were, the, these were what you would call the revealed fears, but they were hidden fears. And beneath those, I was afraid of my wife. I was afraid of any kind of marital conflict. I was very afraid of my mom, very afraid that my mom would withdraw her love from me, even as a grown man, afraid to live with my own autonomy. Um, I was afraid of change. So that meant I was stuck in a... In a, in a um, an unhealthy marriage. I was stuck in a menial job. I was driving an old clapped out car. I was living on the street where I was cramped. I was not living in the, even in the right body. I was not living the right life. And I realized that was because I was afraid of change. Because what does change mean? I mean, you know, if I, if I change something, everything in my reality changes. And I innately knew that. How would my wife deal with me if I suddenly went from being Jeff the factory worker to Jeff the published author talking live on Sky News. How do people deal with that? Not very easily. So I was aware that when I changed, everything would change. I wouldn't want to stay in that job. I wouldn't want to work shifts in a factory. Um, I would want to be a writer. I'd want to be a martial arts instructor. I'd want to be self-employed. I'd want to expand and explore my potentials. That's very frightening for a young working class wife who is steeped in the mores. Very frightening. I didn't really understand that um, overtly at the time, but I understand it. I understood it unconsciously. So I was afraid of change. So I started to put all of those things on my pyramid. I ended up becoming this nightclub bouncer. Um, I became a world class martial artist. I was training three times a day. I was training full-time. I, was, I, I wrote my first book about the experiences. Um, and that was the beginning of the journey. But it started with that fear pyramid. But where does that come from? I mean, I've never read that. But it came directly from my soul. It came from that intuitive place. Wow. So I was, that, was the, that was my first communication, even though I 
again, as you rightly said, I wouldn't have fully understood it, but that was my first communication with my soul, which mm. enabled me to find courage and rather than do what I'd always done, which is run away from fear, run away from anxiety, run away from the feelings of depression, I turned into them. I leaned into the sharp edges. I asked these fears to qualify themselves. I went toe-to-toe with them. I stood in front of them. I embraced them. I intercoursed with them like Francis and the leper. And, of course, you know, the, the story of Francis and the leper is amazing because when Francis embraced the leper of his fear and it wrapped him in a blanket, he disappeared. He just, he just fell, he fell through his arms like sand. And God was saying to him, uh, your fears are illusory, but you will have to absorb 99% of them before they will give up their kingdom. So that became my journey. Wow. And so growing up working class in Britain, um, how did your community, your family, your friends react to someone who had so much fear and so much anxiety? Well, they didn't react very well to my ambition. Generally, the environment didn't, it didn't react very well because if you had ambition and you wanted to do something, people thought you were a big head. People okay. thought you were pretentious. And I was, I was more afraid of the, the, the uh, accusation of pretension than I was of an assassin's bullet. The idea that anybody thought I was above, anybody thought I thought I was above myself. So that was a house ghost that kept me small for quite a while. Sure. Um, so we but we were brought up with a set of rules, and although most of it was implicit and invisible, it kept us in our little space like an invisible tiger. If we moved outside of our space with ambition, with education, um, you know, a better job that tiger just wandered in and we were scared back to the centre again. Um, but I didn't want to live like that. Um, but when I, when I decided to challenge that, when I decided to embrace it, it was very frightening for my uh, closest family. It was very frightening uh, for my friends because they didn't, they didn't want to and they couldn't come with me. It's not that they couldn't come with me, they didn't choose to come with me. People often said, you left people behind. And I said, I left no one behind. I haven't got that power. And I said, but people didn't choose to come with me. But what I did when I broke out of the stratosphere of that working class world was I expanded into a new place where other people were able to follow me if they wanted to. But one of the big fears of expansion is that we will lose people. But that's inevitable. We will gain people as well, of course, but we will lose people because not everyone's going to come with us. You know, so I, uh, people were very, very afraid of the middle class authorities, the doctors, the factory managers, uh, the solicitors, the police. We were very afraid of that. These were the people that decided whether you, you know, whether you uh, got to eat, whether you, whether your health was kept in good shape. Uh, whether you kept your liberty, um, you know, I mean, we'd, we'd all seen people, we'd all, we'd all experienced death by tabloid. We'd all seen the newspapers, even now, destroy people when they stepped outside of the social norms, when they challenged the social norms. So the fears were illusory, but they were real enough to kill people. 
sure. I've watched I've watched friends of mine who have who have committed suicide because they couldn't cope when they stepped outside of their their social boundaries. They just it was mostly dissonance and ignorance that killed them. This is the big Buddhist tenet that uh, it's ignorance that keeps us in misery. It isn't anything in particular because everything everything as we know in the world is is just conceptualized conception creates a form form creates an aspect and that determines whether something is good or bad so my job was to try and deconceptualize everything to take away the aspect to take away the form and just go well i've got a neutral energy here what can i do with it what can i make what can i mold with this amazing energy but to do that we have to go through that uh, my friend calls it the terror barrier, the fear barrier. Mm-hmm. And, of course, everybody wants to do it um, com- with comfort, comfortably. Everybody wants to grow, but they don't want discomfort. And, and there can't be growth with, without discomfort. We have to be prepared to embrace that. Um, or somebody certainly has to be prepared to embrace it first. Mm-hmm. And so, so. How, did you, how did you make the leap? from understanding all of this conceptually to gaining the courage to strike out and go big? Um, It was a very, very gradual ascent. Uh, What I did when I overcame my fears was I created, uh, when I started to overcome my fears, I I had experiential proof that it was possible. So whereas all the other books I'd read weren't telling me that, they were were saying lots of things, but they they weren't actually saying... If you do this, this will work. It's uncomfortable. Um, and a lot of people don't want to go towards it, but it does work. Um, so once I started to go towards that, I started to get, uh, in Islam, they call it yakin, which means certainty. And yakin is one of the 99 names of Allah in the, Holy, in the Holy Quran. The reason that's important is because when we receive certainty, yakin, we receive God. It's literal. So we receive knowing. In, in Judaism, they would call it uh, da'at or knowing. And knowing is a certainty. When you have a certainty, all ignorance dissolves around it because ignorance can't fight against certainty. It's like, a, it's like putting a light in the room. So I started to earn certainty. And when I earn certainty in certain areas, I reclaim those parts of myself. The parts of myself that were dark and ignorant, I reclaimed with earned certainty so god would give me uh, or my intuition would give me a spark of creativity and i would develop that until it till it tumbled over into a certainty and with that certainty i could go anywhere in the world with that certainty because people recognize certainty they recognize certainty because it's god um, and they recognize God because the same spark that's in you is in them. They recognize it's home. So I just I started to do that uh, pyramidically, gradually, a little bit at a time. I didn't want to um, scare the horses. So I just started to grow very gradually. But believe me, once you've stood on the nightclub door um, and you've faced life and death situations, I mean, four of my friends were murdered during the time I was working as a bouncer. So it's a very real threat. Once you face that threat, um, you have a context. When you go into other things, it doesn't feel like anywhere near as much a threat. 
I remember working with the BBC doing a series with a wonderful woman called Karen Manderback, who was a seminal producer. And she said to me one day, television is very tough, Jeff. It's very tough. And I said, well, Karen, in my last job, people tried to kill me. I said, I'm presuming it's not any tougher than that. And she just, no, it's not tougher than that. So I had, I had a context. So whenever I, obviously these reference points are very strong. Every time I met opposition, I started to recognize, I've done this before. I've seen this before. I can overcome this. In fact, I need this opposition because the opposition is the bricks and mortar of the new reality I want to build. I have to, in the Old Testament, they call it the burnt offering. I have to consume that old part of me. I have to consume that negativity in order to build the new me, the new, or, or certainly to uh, reveal the new me, because I don't think you build your soul. I think you just gradually reveal it. Mm, oh. So I just did it just systematically. Once you've, once you've published one book, um, and I didn't believe that was a certainty. I didn't believe that was possible. Nobody in my world, nobody in my reality had ever, ever published a book. I'd never seen it. So for me, it was not possible. So I had to, Yakim has three levels. It has um, intellectual certainty, which is you have to find intellectual proof that it has been done, that it is possible. Someone's done it. And of course, when you start looking for proof, there's loads of it. Then you have to have visionary proof. You have to be able to see that it's possible for you. In other words, you have to be able to visualize yourself seeing it. And that's, that's all part of this development and developmental phase. Um, and then once you have the certainty and you publish your book and it's in your hand, nobody can tell you it's not possible. Nobody. And even though, even though nobody can, when I published my first book, I still had friends that said to me, yeah, but you've just been a bit lucky. It was a bit of luck. I remember thinking, because I said to one of my very close friends, I'm going to try and make a living out of this because I, I, I think I could. And he goes, don't get above yourself, Jeff. Don't be getting above yourself. He said, you know, you've had a bit of luck, okay, but it's a local book. It isn't going to go any more than local. And I remember thinking, yeah, no, he's right, he's right. Then I went away and I thought, no, no, I've got certainty. If I can publish one book, why can't I publish two books, ten books? If I can publish a book, why can't I write a play? If I can write a play, why not a film? If I can write a film, why can't I write for, this, for, the, for the Times in London? If I can write for the Times, why can't I write for the men's magazines, you know, men's fitness, you know, some of the big glosses, which, were, uh, which was a high level of journalism, you know. Um, I, I mean, I eventually even wrote a musical. Right. And I remember one of my, said to my friends, I've, um, I said, I've written a musical. And he went, musical? Like, you can't, what do you know about musicals? I said, well, I don't really know about musicals, but I like music. And I know how to tell a story. And I wrote an, I wrote an acclaimed musical with, um, with a band called The Enemy who had a million-selling album. And we did this amazing, amazing, beautiful musical. But I did that because it was an intuition. And I knew it was possible because I got the proof from all of my reference points to say, see that it was possible. But it wasn't possible without work. It wasn't possible without process. Well, it didn't just appear to me. I still had to sit down and I had to make the burnt sacrifice, which is I had to, I had to consume my ignorance and I had to, and the, the, the ignorance floats around inside you 
as a semi-autonomous thought form. So it doesn't give up its sovereignty easy. Like that was a quote from Eckhart Tolle, by the way. But it floats around like a semi-autonomous thought, thought, thought form, and it does not give up its sovereignty easy. And you have to consume that in the act of creation. So it is, by nature, it's uncomfortable. So I've just, I've just kept building, really. So let this is an absolutely amazing story. I, I could talk about this all day, and I just absolutely love this stuff. Let's do switch gears a little bit and talk about the divine CEO, which is your newest. Okay. Book, right. Yeah. So um, in the acknowledgements, you credit Jesus, you credit yeah. Christ and yeah. you certainly have a very strong connection there. Um, can you tell us about the premise of the book and why you wrote it? The premise of the book is really just what we're talking about. It's building a spiritual hierarchy, spiritual hierarchy. It's, um, in Christian theology, they would call it apophatic theology, which sounds fancy, but it just really means finding God through negation. We remove everything that we know isn't God until we, are, we find what is God, or remove, we remove everything that isn't us until we reveal who we are. And that's as simple as going, well, I'm not angry. That's not who I am. Uh, and I'm not jealous. That's not who I am. I'm not greedy. That's not who I am. I'm not envious. That is not who I am. You know, I'm not um, uh, uh, violent. That's not who I am. I'm not insecure. That's not who I am. They're not godlike qualities. So what I did is I revealed who I knew I wasn't. And by dissolving those parts of who I wasn't, which literally meant not falling into anger, not flirting with greed or jealousy or being too ambitious once i started to dissolve those parts of myself and reclaim those parts of myself god or christ the christ energy consciousness just filled uh, filled the vacated space i mean it literally it literally filled the space as the old part was leaving the new part was 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 coming in so this the divine ceo is is um a practical book about how to do that, how to build a hierarchy so that the animal soul or the ego can clean itself and lift itself and connect with the higher soul. And the higher soul is the divine CEO. And the higher soul is connected directly to the God energy. So the higher soul would be, would be what I was considered to be the Christ energy. Um, and that's what's carried me all the way through. The very first time I did the fear pyramid, that was Christ coming through me. It was Christ consciousness. Or you could, if you were from Hindu, you could call it the Krishna consciousness, or you could call it the Allah consciousness. It, it really, you know, once you get to, once you get to that abstract place, it's it become it's obviously beyond names. It's, it wouldn't be it wouldn't be uh, confined by a name. Right. But culturally, culturally, that that the Christ energy really suits me. But I've also accessed it through a tree. It's omniscient. It's omnipotent. It's omnipresent. I can access it from anywhere. It is ever present. It is always looking to help and to guide. So um, I don't get too caught up with the names, but um, you know, whatever somebody wants to call it is okay. Um, as long as it comes from love with a capital L, that's good for me. So it's um, yeah, so it's about building the hierarchy, but with very in in a very pragmatic and rude way. Not this isn't socks and sandals. 
you know, this isn't hugging trees. This is a, this is about uh, brutal practi- practicality. You know, people want to change the world, but they can't even wipe their own nose. You know, they want to they want to control the economy, but they can't even control their own waistline. You know, they want to work with the magical, but they're like Aesop's fabled turtle. They want to fly, but they can't walk yet. So we have to we have to start our magic. We have to start our uh, our alchemy with this body. This body needs to be my work in, you know, this is, this is the lab. This is what I need to work on. I need to be living proof to myself. I need to find certainty with myself and show that to other people so that you can look at me and say, yes, this is a man who is living his dharma. This is a man who is living his teaching. So we've got to be able to, you know, like I said, it's, it's no good marching around London protesting about something if we still can't solve an argument in our own front room, if we still can't solve an argument in our own head. So mm. the, the book is about knowing who we are. When we take this advice, when we hear it, who is it that hears it? Who is it that acts it out? You know, because the, there's a presumption that it's a single eye. It's not. There's 10 in there. There's 20 in there. There's all sorts of different personalities that haven't been identified and cleaned. So this is saying, who are you? And that's the big question. So this idea of um, apophatic theology is reducing all of the parts that aren't you until all you're left with is you. And that, that, is, that, that, will be to do, that is to do with what you eat, what you drink, yeah. um, what you ingest through the, all the senses. Everything we take in is food. If I'm taking in negative food, why would I expect this small city to be anything other than negative? Why would, I, why would I plant dandelion and be surprised when it doesn't come up as an apple tree? You know. So we, we have to recognize that this body is the crucible. It's the tabernacle. What we put into it is really, really important. Mm-hmm. Our spirituality needs to be muscular. It needs to be able to move mountains. And to do that, we have to find certainty. The first certainty is, who am I? Who is the person that's observing? Who is the person that's writing the things down on the pyramid and confronting the things on the pyramid? He's my observer, so I need to make him strong. I need to make him muscular. I need to, I need to shrink the ego. I need to expand the soul. Did you know that Radiate Wellness has a subscription-based premium content Facebook group? Think of it like the premium version of this free podcast. In this premium Facebook group, you can find great content like replays of online classes, meditations on angels, chakras, mindfulness, and more, guest speakers, mini classes, polls, plus you'll be the first to know of guests that we have scheduled for the podcast and can submit questions for them. You get all of this great content for one low monthly price, and the first month is half off. You can subscribe by going to radiatewellnesscommunity.com slash shop. Click the subscriptions button, and you're in. Also, while I have your attention, wherever you're listening to this free podcast, if you could just do us a couple of favors, please. One is go to hit the subscribe or follow button. Then you'll be notified of all of the episodes we have coming out each week. Also, please rate and review. It sounds really simple, but it helps us to grow our audience when people are looking for great podcasts.
And when we grow our audience, we can do bigger and better things and bring you even more great guests. So please do those couple of things, and that will help us grow this audience and this podcast. Thank you so much for listening. I had two conversations which were really telling. One was with Yuri Geller, you know, the mystic. Oh, yeah. I said to him, this is many years ago, I was on the phone to him. He was a friend of a friend. And I said, Yuri, how can I improve? He says, Jeff, you need to expand. Then I had a, a meditation and I accessed Mahatma Gandhi, who I really love. And I said, Mahatma Gandhi, what, how can I improve? He said, Jeff, you need to make yourself small. They were both saying the same thing. When we shrink the ego, we expand the consciousness. When we expand the consciousness, we shrink the ego. So when we meditate and when we do acts of charity and kindness, especially the anonymous kind, we expand our conscious net. When we expand the conscious net, the ego shrinks because it doesn't want selflessness. It wants selfishness. When we, um, uh, when we deprive the ego of its food, you know, all of the excesses, the pornographies in life, the ego shrinks. We make the body inhospitable for the ego. Eventually, it gives up its pseudo-sovereignty. And as the ego shrinks, of course, the consciousness expands. So we expand when we, we, expand when we uh, decrease, and we decrease when we expand. Right. So they both give me the same advice. It sounded contradictory, but we will, we will expand as we contract, and we will contract as we expand. And it's a very practical exercise. Yeah. That the first thing it says is get your diet right, get your food right. You want to change the world, you're still being beaten up by that chocolate bar in the fridge that you can't, you know, that second pudding, that, you know, that, you know, third extra on your menu. You can't control your food, but you want to control the world. So let's get the things right that we know are bullying us. Let's look at the things that are kicking the sand in our place. Let's master those first because we can't get to the incorporeal other than through the corporeal. We've got to get a mastery of this first. So it's a very practical book and saying, um, I know this is probably not what you want in here, but this is how I did it. Um, and I'm not asking you to take my word for it. I'm asking you to give it a try. If it speaks to you, if it's, in, if it's intuitive and you feel it, and go out and give it a try. Try it for yourself and be your own proof. Because my certainty uh, can only act as a first certainty for you, but you need three levels of certainty. Oh, first level is in, well, the first level is intellectual proof, which means I can say to you, I've done it, and here's my proof. So you can go, okay, it's possible. Then you have to be able to visualize yourself doing it, and then you have to actually physically do it. And if you can control your body weight, that's a massive step right there. Because once we get our, once we can, we, we've got to control the senses. We control the senses through palate. Once the senses fall into a line, um, we control ourselves. When we control ourselves, then we have control of the world because the world is a projection from us. So this is how Gandhi went from being a failed lawyer, a sex addict who used to visit prostitutes and a very, in his own words, a very weak, uh, feeble man. He went from being a feeble man to bring in the British Empire to its knees with non-violence through control of palate, fundamentally. So obviously he educated himself and he expanded his knowing, but, but he recognised that while his senses were still firing off um, and controlling him, he would never be able to do anything. 
So we control these senses through palate. But these are all, all the things I'm saying now are just um, avenues for people to explore. You know, and it's not saying I'm just, you know, I'm not going to sit here and just say, just wish it and it will come, you know, or just think it will come because I'm because I'm going to say to you, well, who's wishing it and who's thinking it? Is it you or is it some other pseudo personality that you know that's going to change by tomorrow? Because every time we engage an idea or every time we engage a thought form, it is an incarnation. But is it a good one? I know a lot of my early incarnations were not good ones and they would engage thoughts that weren't kind. And I had to suffer for that because, uh, you know, obviously what, what we do as a karmic residue, you know, the law of uh, compensation, what goes out returns, always returns. So, it's, uh, so that's what it's about. It's, talk, it's also talking a lot about uh, causation. Uh, so if you read somebody like Aurobindo, he would say to you, until you understand cause and effect, you can't even begin. Until you recognize that what you think, what you say, and what you do goes out into the world and acts, and then will come back with its profit, until you understand that, you're not going to be able to move forward because you don't understand the basic dharma. So right. the dharma is the rules. What are the rules? What are the rules of this society? We need to understand it. We also need to understand that this body is also uh, um, oh it's God. also it's also cause and effect within the body. What I eat will affect me. What I drink will affect me. What I read and watch will affect me. Yeah. So it's uh, the whole this whole uh, the Buddhists call it the great earth. It, it, the law is causation. So the Buddha says, learn the Dharma, um, which is the law, and then your place within the Dharma. So I understand causation, and I understand this realm, but what is my role in this realm? What is my role? That's what we've got to identify. We can't identify what the role is for each individual until we first recognize who we are. So I know my role is to do this. It's to talk to lovely people like you and to plant seeds that some kid's going to pick up, and it's going to act as an intercession for them. It's going to take them off in a whole other direction hopefully a much better direction. So understand the Dharma, understand causation, understand you know, have control of the vehicle and then connect to your higher self and then become a vessel for love. Love with a capital L, muscular love. And so it sounds like there's so much packed into this book. It sounds like your you're really seminal work that encapsulates Everything most of it just most of it just came through me. I don't when exactly. it came through me. It, it, I, I remember finishing. I was finish, writing a book called Notes from a Factory Floor, and I've been trying to write the CEO for quite a while, and it wasn't coming. And I finished the day I finished. I wrote one hundred and fifty thousand words on the Notes from a Factory Floor, and the day I finished, I said to my wife, "CEO has come. I can feel it." I walked up to my local park, and on the way. 20 chapter headings downloaded into my head and I had to send them to myself as emails because I, I knew I'd forget them. I sent them to myself and on the Monday I started and um, over eight weeks I wrote 150,000 words but it came through me. So it didn't come from me. It picked up my stories, it picked up my flavours, it picked up my essence but it wasn't from me, it was through me. So I recognised a lot of the stuff that came through me I hadn't known before, 
you know, it came from a teacherless place. So, it, and it is, it is a compilation of everything I've ever learned, but it's also everything I've ever learned plus stuff I didn't know. So I was just a carrier for it. And so you do mention this wife a few times, and you said that she was afraid of what you were becoming. This is my first wife, yeah. Oh, I see. Okay. So it says a lot, doesn't it? <laughs> Sometimes people can't keep up with our growth. No, no. And that was one of the that was one of the most upsetting things for me was that um I knew I was so driven. I was so driven to expand um on a new um that I would lose people. I wanted them to come with me, not just because it was them. I wanted them to come with me because I didn't want to do it on my own. I wanted company. I wanted friends. So I've had to, I've lost lots of, I lost my first wife. I've lost lots of my friends on the way. As I've gone through different rounds of growth, you sure. know, I've, I've, I've lost lots of people. I've even had like, you know, loved friends and students attack me and criticize me publicly because of where I've gone, because what I did frightened them and they didn't understand it. And I've had to take that into consideration and not, um, and not take that personally. That's part of growth as well. Part of growth is that some people will be frightened by what you do and their way of dealing with that truth is to attack you because right. they just don't understand it. So we have to recognize that as well. We do. And, you know, the title of this episode is Radiate Forgiveness. Yeah. So how does that how does that play in? Well, the reason the reason this is about forgiveness is because I didn't really I didn't really start to expand spiritually until I until I was able to forgive the person I was I was sexually abused when I was eleven by a, by a beloved teacher, um, and I wasn't really able to get a clear view until I was able to forgive him, till I stood in front of him at the age of forty and and I forgave him. I tell the whole story in my TED talk if anyone wants to look at it. Um, but I recognize this is when I built, I developed the ability as a fighter, I become a bouncer. I was a martial arts teacher. So I knew how to fight. I could kill in 50 languages, you know. And when I stood in front of this person uh, who'd abused me as a boy, I recognized that um, my job wasn't to let him off, my job was to give him over. If I, if I was violent with him anywhere, in, in any way, if I was violent in any way, I'd have only fed the parasite that he left in me. What I recognized, and this is really interesting, I'm only starting to understand this in an articulate way recently. I recognized that when I was 11, he stole something from me. He stole the spark from me. He disabled my soul. And, and, when, and when he took that part of my soul, he left a parasite in me. So even though we were, we were, I didn't see him for 30 years and we were at a distance from each other in time and space, he still abused me because his parasite was in my head and it acted through me and it fed off me. And I did all sorts of, uh, you know, like I was very violent for a long time. I self-harmed, I sexually self-harmed, all very uncomfortable things. But until I was able to forgive him, I couldn't retrieve that part of my soul. When I retrieved that part of my soul, when I forgave him, um, I, I also gave him back his darkness. And that's what, when you look at St. Paul, when he's talking about the Christ, he says, uh, Romans 12, 20, when your enemy's hungry, feed him. When he's thirsty, give him drink. For in so doing, 
thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. What that means, uh, as an allegory, what it means is that when we forgive somebody, in other words, when we, when we deliver them bread, which is the truth of the Torah, the truth of the Bible, uh, which is love, um, and when we, when we give them wine, which is, uh, which is the faith of the Bible, it's the faith of the Torah, when we give them that, um, uh, the, the, the parasite that they've placed into us, we give it back to them and we retrieve our soul. So when our soul comes back into us, we expand. And when we give them their evil back, it's the hot coal on their head. So we give it back to them. And that's why they say it's like Paul's uh, hot coal on the head. So I had living proof of this. And I've just had a film made about this with Orlando Bloom, which is out in America at the moment called, uh, it was called Romans, but I think they've named it something different in America. I think they've called it Retaliation. But that's, it's called Romans. It was called Romans originally. Um, and that whole film is about the metaphysical power of forgiveness. And um, the person that I, that abused me, when I forgave him, and I properly forgave him and let him go. And I, in other words, I gave him, I gave his crime over to reciprocity. I gave it over, back over to God. Um, I heard a few years later that he killed himself, that he took his own life. Um, and when somebody asked me how I felt about that, I said, I just feel compassion. That's when I knew I'd got this parasite out of me. So when people abuse us, when people hurt us, they leave a remnant of their evil in us, and that feeds even from a distance. When we forgive them, in other words, when we, when we look at them and recognize that my job isn't to let you off. I haven't got that power. Forgiveness is not a human power. It's a divine imperative. So when I say, when I forgive you, it means I give your crime over to uh, the law of compensation, to cause and effect, to God. I give it back over to the law, which means they haven't got to face me. They've got to face this almighty law. And that's like taking on the whole universe. So I recognized when I forgave him that I retrieved my soul um, and I gave him back his evil. I expanded and he contracted and ended up unfortunately dying. But that was the beginning of my healing. So forgiveness for me was, a, first of all, about understanding what forgiveness is because people have all of this debate about we can't let people off. But we haven't got the power to do that. You know, there is a, this, if we understand the law of Dharma, we understand the Dharma, if we understand basic cause and effect, we recognize that nobody escapes the consequence of their actions. Nobody. But it's not my job to make him face those actions. I may have a day in court, or that, you know, that might happen in a judiciary way, but my job is to, lead, is to allow causation to deal with that. And uh, rather than look at what he's done wrong, come back into my own life and look at where I've been wrong, where I need forgiveness. So I can't give forgiveness, but I can ask forgiveness for myself. I can repent. So my job was to, once I forgave him, I realized that my forgiveness was a quiet conceit because I thought, crikey, I've let him go. And now that he's not in me, I can see all of the things I've done wrong myself. And I was suddenly overwhelmed with this feeling of I've, got, I've done so many things wrong. So I started to work on repentance. And repentance sounds biblical. It scares people. But what it really means is return. It means we return to God. We return to the still center. We return to refuge. 
And to return to refuge isn't just about, you know, you know, obviously we stop doing the negative things. That's how we return to the center. It's about the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, which in other words, it's about having a spiritual teacher, um, having a, having a, um, a spiritual law, um, and having a spiritual community. So what you're doing on this amazing podcast is you're creating a, a spiritual community. Yes. So you're giving people uh, the Buddha, the, the, you know, the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. You're giving them the teacher, the teaching, and you're giving them the community. So when you put all of those three together, and this took me years and years to understand, all three of them together is repentant. When we are steeped in the study of love, when everything we do is based around love, we are, um, we are repenting. We are in a place of repentance. Or a better word might be we are in refuge. So God wants us to take refuge in him. And we can only do that if we stop doing the things we shouldn't do and start doing the things we should do. And that's, a, as we know, that's a gradual process. But if, if we move one step towards God, he will move 10 steps towards us. No. So that, that's, that's why forgiveness is powerful, because it's saying, first of all, um, it's not our job to forgive. It's our job to ask for forgiveness. It's our job to give over all of these grudges to the law, give it over to the Dharma. We may have to play our part in that. You know, I'm not naive. We may have to play our part. Maybe we'll have to go to court. Maybe we'll have to stand in front of people. Maybe the things we have to do, but it's not us that forgives. Um, and we can only be forgiven ourselves, and all of us need to be forgiven. We all need mercy. We can only be forgiven to the level that we can forgive other people. That's, that just becomes really obvious. So you start to think, right, I, I don't need to look at what everybody else is doing wrong. I need to get myself right. I need to, I need to repent. I need to uh, find refuge. And once I start to find cleanliness in myself, God will give me a platform so that I can talk to kids um, and that I can reach kids that are struggling. I can reach kids that have been deluded into thinking there's no way out. But there is, isn't there? Of course there is. There's a, there's a way out. Look at, look at uh, Nelson Mandela. He was a terrorist, became, you know, became a prophet. Look at Aguilamala, you know, the, the, um, the Buddhist. He was a, um, a Buddhist terrorist um, who killed a thousand people and became uh, cleansed through the Buddha. Look at Milarepa, killed 35 people. He found refuge. You know, look at St. Paul. Paul was a, Paul was a um, you know, persecuted the Christians, and he found redemption through Christ. So the, the belief is that some people can't be redeemed. The truth is that everybody can be redeemed. And I'm proof, because I, I was for 10 years of my life, I dis displaced my anger in violence. Mm. Um, and I don't do that. That's not how I live anymore. Mm. I haven't lived like that for two and a half decades because I've found refuge. So it's saying to everybody out there, you think there's no hope, but there is hope. Just turn back to the centre. Keep going back to that, that still centre. Wow. Um, and so all of this is in the Divine CEO. All of, all of it, yeah. Yeah, all of it's in the Divine CEO, which is coming out when? What is the publisher? Uh, July, July 31st, and it's with John Hunt Publishers. Yes, John so Hunt you can, you can, Yeah, you can pre-order pre now from um, Amazon. 
What? Oh, there it is. There's the cover. Yeah. Yay. Yeah. The divine. It's beautiful, isn't it? Hmm? Divine it's beautiful. Beautiful. Yeah. Yes. See, what I said, what I said when we did the cover, I said, um, I want mentions of Christ on the back. Originally, I wanted the picture of the Buddha with the background of, of the crucifixion. But we, we only had room for the Buddha, but inside there's lots of mention of Christ. I wanted to I wanted to say to people, you can find it where you need to find it. You know, if you want to find it through the garden or find it through nature, God's in all of it. He's not going to be offended if you don't get the name right. He just wants you to turn in and find that still center. Because uh, I've, I've been blessed. I've been sent some of the teachers that have come into my life through books. I've had a, a, the most amazing, amazing teachers, and they've come from every faith. And I know when I've had my own uh, moments of clarity, at this top end, there was no difference between a Buddha and a Christ and a Krishna. There was no difference. There was no demarcation. It was just love. It's just one energy that that becomes, um, you know, when it goes through the filter of human um, human cognition, it becomes lots and lots of political things. But it's just about love. It's just about love. And so um, I see that you do have a website, the Forgiveness Project. That that isn't me actually. That's I, I am on there, but uh, the forgiveness project is a is a uh, was a was a something started by a woman called or financed by a woman called Anita Roddick, you know, of the Body Shop. Oh yes, um, and and it's run by a friend of mine. Um, so she runs this amazing site called the, the Forgiveness Project, and I've done one or two projects on there. Uh, oh, or, if people want to look at my stuff, it's on um, Instagram, Jeff Thompson Official. Uh, on Instagram, that's your Instagram handle, and the book again is um, the Divine CEO, available yeah. through John Hunt Publishing. Yeah. Um, Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. It has been just so enlightening and inspiring. It's, I mean, like your story has really, really touched my heart, and I found so much wisdom in your story, um, and I'm thinking about changes I can make in my own life. So you truly transformed me and touched me. That's good. Well, every time I hear it, it renews my own vigor. It makes, you know, because obviously we all fall into forgetting. It's easy to be three or four weeks in and think, why am I getting up at five to meditate again? And why am I eating light? And why am I not gossiping? I need to, you need to keep reminding yourself. So it's every time I speak it, I'm reminded. Part of my sangha, part of my community is talking about it. And part of my own cleansing comes through consuming the parts of me that don't want to sit and talk uh, in order to create the volition to talk. So all the negative parts in me that still exist in me, I'm still a work in progress, get consumed. They are the burnt offerings of every talk I do, every book I write, every film I make, every play that's staged. So this material that is trying to stop the kid out there who's uh, from achieving his goals is what you actually need that opposition because opposition is going to be the material that you use to create what you want to create. Oh, I love it. I love don't it. Throw the baby out. Don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> and so your message comes to you through um, various different avenues and channels, but it all comes through and it ties together. 
So thank you again for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And um, best of luck with the Divine CEO. And then just briefly, do you have any other projects coming up? Uh, I've got a book coming out in September called um, uh, Notes from a Factory Floor, which is a memoir. Notes from a Factory Floor is this, uh, it, it, it kind of takes the reader from the time 30 years ago when I wrote my first book right to winning the BAFTAs, um, going to train in, in teaching Las Vegas for Chuck Norris and working with Orlando Bloom and making films and plays. So it takes people through the whole story and explains the, you know, brick by brick how I actually created that or how that was created through me. Uh, we've got a film just come out in America, uh, the retaliation one with Orlando Bloom, which is, which is, a, which is based on my life, which is, uh, about the metaphysical power of forgiveness. Very muscular film. I'm actually in the process of writing a book uh, called 13 Reasons Why We Should Forgive. Oh, I love it. Okay, so we'll have you back. Thank you. I'd like to talk to you about that. Thank you. <laughs> so thank, thank you again, Jeff Thompson. Radiate Wellness is a community of holistic and alternative healers and consultants based in the Kansas City area dedicated to helping you create spiritual, energetic, and physical well-being. To learn more about our practitioners, services, classes, and events, or to schedule an appointment, visit us at radiatewellnesscommunity.com. If you're inspired by the teachings of Dr. Wayne Dyer, you will love the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast with Nadia Dela Cruz. You are a spiritual being having a human experience. My name is Nadia Dela Cruz, and I started the Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life podcast to explore spiritual topics like manifestation and meditation with guests who share their own stories of insight, awakening, and transformation. Listen now on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.